This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. If you have your Bibles, would you open them up to Isaiah 6? Isaiah 6. There are plenty of people that you rub shoulders with who believe in God. But uh, many people that you rub shoulders with possess only a God concept. He's not a living reality. And uh, quite frankly, that, that might be a good description of where you are in your journey. Uh, you're living a religious life with God as a concept rather than a living reality. And uh, we're going to explore the difference between those two and the significance of that difference today. So we're going to look at this passage. We're going to look at it under three headings, what it, what it means for God to be real, what it takes for God to become real, and what it creates when God is real. What it means for God to be real, what it takes for God to become real, and what it creates when God is real. First, what it means for God to be real. What does it mean for God to move from being a concept to being a living reality? What does that mean? From concept to living reality. Let me read the first four verses of Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Now, Isaiah is a Jewish man with Jewish heritage. He's familiar with the Bible, the law of Moses. And so when he walks into the temple and sees the glory of the Lord, he does not say, oh, there really is a God. He already believed. But God was just a concept until this moment. See, the difference between God as a concept and God as reality is all about glory. The difference between God as concept versus God as living reality is all about glory. God will move from being a concept in your life to a living reality in your life when you're confronted with the glory of the Lord. Now, what do we mean by that? What do we mean by the glory of the Lord? Well, the word for glory literally means weight. When you take a rock and you drop it into water, it displaces the water. The water has to adjust to the reality of the rock entering it. When you drop something heavier, denser than ice onto it, it can break through the ice. Everything around it is forced to adjust to the reality of that object. When God's glory breaks into your life, there are aspects to your life that are displaced or forced to revolve around the reality of God. See, when God is a concept, he's lighter than you. When you bring God as a concept into your life, he's lighter than you. You shape it. It fits around your existing patterns. It harmonizes with your existing view of things. It doesn't move you around. You move it around. 
A God concept doesn't really change your beliefs. It just fits in with your existing beliefs. If your beliefs have not been rearranged, God is probably a concept to you, not a reality. See, modern people today are constantly saying, well, I can't believe this part of the Bible. I can't believe that part of the Bible. We can't believe that anymore. In other words, it's regressive. What they're saying is that our beliefs come from our cultural moment. And as a brief aside here, keep in mind, (laughs) your great-grandchildren are going to be just as embarrassed about half the beliefs you hold today as you are about the beliefs of your great-grandparents. Store that away. But right now, our cultural moment feels very real. In other words, it has glory. Now, we come to the Bible, and we look at the Bible, and we say, well, I can't believe that, I can't believe that, I can't believe that. In other words, you don't have a real God. You have a God concept. You don't have a God who can actually change your deepest held beliefs or contradict you. Now, fitting God into our existing patterns of belief isn't the only place we do this. We also try to fit God in to our existing agendas, plans, and goals. Plenty of people get religious. They go to church. They start reading their Bibles. They start praying. Why? Because they need help in getting to their goals. In other words, God is fitting into your existing agenda. God as a concept is lighter than you, but God as a reality is heavier than you. When God becomes real to you, things give way to His glory. Things give way to His glory. Beliefs you once had give way to His glory. Plans you once had give way to His glory. Your use of time and money give way to His glory. Cherished attitudes and emotions give way to His glory. Uh, Many of you know that I'm a pastor's kid, and when I was a young boy, the church that my dad was pastoring had uh, an outreach event, and in order to do this outreach event, the church had brought in a special guest, and uh, in the the run-up to this event, this guest had come to our home, and I guess we were having dinner together and enjoying conversation. At that age, four or five years old, the only thing I was interested in was sports, and so I Ran to my room, got my football, brought it down, thought, well, why, what guest wouldn't want to play catch in the living room? And uh, so I got the football, and I threw it to the guest, and uh, this, this guest grabbed the football and was about to throw it to me, and I said, no, 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 no. That's not how you throw a football. Let me show you how to hold it. Let me show you how to throw a football. So I walked over to him. Put my hands on the laces. I said, see, you've got to have your hands, your fingers on the laces just like this. And then you lift it up and you throw it. That's how you throw a football. Well, um, I later came to find out that this guest we had in our home was a man by the name of Fred Cox. Fred Cox is the all-time leading scorer for the Minnesota Vikings. <laughs> He's one of only 11 players to have played in all four Super Bowls. And yes, Packer fans, I'm aware that they lost them all. Fred Cox was an all-pro pro pro bowler. At the time he retired, he was the second all-time leading scorer in NFL history behind George Blanda. And here I am, a five-year-old boy, lecturing him on how to and how not to throw a football. (laughs) 
Look, I am quite sure that had I fully appreciated this man's reality, had I fully appreciated this man's glory, I would not have lectured him on how to and how not to throw a football. I'm quite sure I would have invited him to lecture me on how to and how not to throw a football. I didn't appreciate his glory. He was a concept. He was not a reality. He was just another man. See, when God is a concept to you, you lecture him. You show him how things are or ought to be. You get his beliefs to work with yours. You tone down his opinions on certain issues in order to make them harmonize with yours. You ask him into your life to be your assistant, to help you achieve your plans and your goals. When God becomes a reality, when God has glory, every dimension of your life gives way to him. Second, what it takes for God to become real. What it takes for God to become real. We're going to see three things in this text. The first thing, if, we're going to, if, we're, if God's going to be moved from concept to reality, we have to treasure his holiness. Now, the seraphim are not robotically declaring, but are treasuring the holiness of God. And this is interesting for a couple of reasons. The first is how they declare the holiness of God. In the Hebrew language, magnitude is conveyed through repetition. Magnitude is conveyed through repetition. So, for example, in Genesis 14, it talks about how some people fell into very deep pits. But literally, it reads, pit pits. These were really deep pits. These were the pittiest of pits. In 2 Kings 25, there's a reference to the purest of gold. But in the Hebrew language, it literally reads, gold, gold. The most magnificent gold. Magnitude is conveyed through repetition. Here in Isaiah 6 is the only time a quality is tripled. The only time. Magnitude conveyed through repetition. Now notice it's not power, power, power. It's not even love, love, love. It's holy, holy, holy. Now the word literally means set apart, but a number of scholars have pointed out that maybe the best way to describe what the seraphim are declaring is that they're declaring God's superlativeness. God's superlativeness. God's infinitely unique superlativeness. God will never move from concept to living reality unless you can treasure His superlativeness. But treasuring God's superlativeness isn't something that comes easy to us. And what does it look like exactly to treasure the superlativeness of God? Let me try to get at that by illustrating the opposite. Okay? How do we treasure the superlativeness of God? What does that look like? Well, let me try to answer that by illustrating the opposite. Imagine you have some family money. You have some family money, and someone comes along and says, uh, I'd like to marry you. And so you get married. And imagine after the wedding, at some point... Uh, your spouse comes to realize that he or she can't really get his or her hands on that family money, and they leave you. How do you feel? Violated? Used? Just a means to an end? An object? You feel like you were not loved for who you were in and of yourself? 
Do you realize that almost all of us relate to God like that? How do you think he feels? Well, what do you mean, you say? Well, I've talked to people, you've talked to people who say, well, you know, I used to believe in God. I used to go to church. I used to serve God, but he didn't come through for me. He let this happen. He didn't let this happen, and it shouldn't have happened, and I don't understand why he let my life go like that, and I asked for this, and he let me down. In other words, God has this incredible blessing bank account somewhere, but he would never let me get my hands on it, and when I realize that I'm not going to get my hands on the blessings of God, I'm out of there. You married God for his money. He was an object. But the seraphim are adoring and praising God not on the basis of a cost-benefit analysis. They're serving him just because it's his due. Just because of who he is. Just because of the beauty of who he is. See, for the seraphim, God's superlativeness, holiness, is not all that useful. But it's beautiful. Now, how can someone find holiness beautiful in itself? Jonathan Edwards, in a number of places in his writings, talks about this. He talks about how useful the attributes of God are, except for this one. He says, you know, God's power is something that you can get excited about selfishly because it's useful to you, right? I have a powerful God who can change my circumstances and bless me. God's wisdom is something you can get excited about selfishly because it's useful to you. I have a wise God who is going to give me guidance as I navigate this part of my life. God's mercy is something you can get excited about selfishly because it's useful to you. Now I can get rid of my guilt and my shame. God's holiness is of no use to you. It's nothing but a threat. Anyone who worships God's holiness is worshiping God just for who he is in and of himself because it's of no practical benefit to you at all. We have to learn to treasure the holiness of God if God is ever going to move from concept to living reality. You cannot just stay in a relationship with God based on a cost-benefit analysis. If that's the extent of your relationship with God, he's a concept to you, not a living reality. Second, we have to confess our vileness. So after Isaiah gets this glimpse, here's what he says. Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. So seeing, experiencing God's superlativeness for the first time creates Isaiah's reaction. It creates Isaiah's reaction. Now we look at Isaiah's experience. We look at all that he saw, all that he went through, and we think, boy, I'd love to have that. I'd love to have that. Well, quite frankly, throughout human history, not many have. (laughs) But history is filled with people who have come to a place of grasping the holiness of God. So how do we do this? Well, let's just think, of, think about this for a minute. Um, 
Think for a moment about being in the presence of human superlativeness. Think about being in the presence of human superlativeness. Now, intuitively, you know what this is like. If you're in the presence of human superlativeness, you will always find it traumatic because it absolutely crushes your self-image. You might think you're pretty. You might think you're smart. You might think you're fast. And then you move to a really big city where now you're in proximity to people who are prettier, faster, and smarter than you are. When I was in high school, I, uh, I was a starter on the varsity basketball team. I attended Green Bay Preble High School, which is a Division I school in the state, and my graduating class was 460 students. I did not think I was too bad at hoops. I did not think I was all that bad. I was a starter on the varsity basketball team. I thought, I, I'm not that bad, right? Well, the University of Wisconsin Green Bay hosted a basketball camp for high school students every summer. It was called a select camp because only the best players in the state could come to this camp. I had the opportunity to go to the camp. Now that statement should come with an asterisk. I was not regarded as one of the best players in the state at the time. I knew someone. I knew someone who got me in, and quite frankly, I wanted the challenge, and I thought I could hang with these guys. Uh, Well, okay, here's what happened. (laughs) First day of camp, we were doing a drill, two-on-one drill, two people on offense, one on defense. I'm, I'm behind this group of three. One guy on offense turns to his partner on offense and just does one of these. That's all he did. They go down the court. This guy throws the ball up to the rim. The other guy jumps, grabs it in midair, and dunks it. An alley-oop uh, executed to perfection. I knew at that moment I was in the wrong camp. That camper ended up going to the Final Four as a starter for the Wisconsin Badgers, and I preached sermons on, in church on Sundays. <laughs> I was in the presence, the physical presence, the physical proximity to human superlativeness, and it was traumatic because it crushed my self-image. So if being in the presence of human superlativeness If being in the presence of human superlativeness causes your self-image to come crashing down around you, how could it be any different with God? How could it be any different? Think about Isaiah. He's from a royal family. His uh, his father was brother to the king. He was one of the elites. Uh, Isaiah was regarded as a man of artistic, communicative, and intellectual genius. He had the golden tongue. Now, when God is a concept to you, everyone else is the problem. When God is a concept, everyone else is the problem. It's those people over there. It's that set of ideas over there. When God's a concept in your life, you will constantly be pointing your finger. You, 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 you. But when Isaiah gets into the presence of God, he realizes he's the problem. In a sense, Isaiah says, all all my people are unclean, and I'm just one of them. Even the best part of me, my lips are flawed and distorted. See, every single place in the Bible where people move from God as concept to God as reality, they start to hate themselves. Job, I had heard of you with my ears, but now I have seen you with my eyes and I repent in dust and ashes. Isaiah, woe is me, I am undone. Peter, depart from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. Every single place in the Bible where people move from God as concept to God as reality, they start to hate themselves. And modern people will look at that and say, that sounds like low self-esteem. I believe in a God of love. 
But look, if in the presence of human superlativeness, your self-image comes crashing down around you, how could it be any different with God? See, here's how you know you've begun to get into the real presence of God. Here's how you know that you've begun to believe God as a reality. You think you're a sinner. You think you're lost. You see that you're more capable of cruelty, more capable of evil, more selfish, more petty, more small-minded, more impatient than you ever thought you were. See, when you think and believe this, you know you're moving from God as concept to God as reality. But there's one more thing that has to happen for us to move from God as concept to God as reality, that we have to savor his forgiveness. Verses six and seven, the one of seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And then in the very next verse, God employs Isaiah in his service. Guilt taken away, sin atoned for, employed in the service of God. Isaiah has been forgiven and accepted by the superlative God. See, the moment Isaiah comes to grips with the disparity between God's holiness and his sinfulness, God explodes into his life. The moment Isaiah realizes and confesses he's more sinful, flawed, and messed up than he ever thought possible, God becomes a reality to him. See, I have a theory as to why God's forgiveness doesn't move too many of us. The theory is that we have diminished, we have a diminished view of the superlativeness of God and a diminished view of our vileness. We have depreciated God's superlativeness and we have upgraded our view of our goodness. We have shrunk the gap between ourselves and God. And that's why his forgiveness doesn't electrify hearts like it should. Years ago, Stephen Sharnock put, the, put it this way. He said, more distant are we from God by reason of sin than the vilest creature, the most deformed toad or poisonous serpent is from the highest, most glorious angel. Isaiah's experience in Sharnock's quote establishes the preconditions needed for your heart to be electrified by God's forgiveness. See, I don't think I could ever savor God's forgiveness until I have reckoned with the magnitude of his holiness and the severity of my sin. But this is exactly the recipe God put together in order to create the explosion into Isaiah's life. Third, what it creates when God is real. Isaiah has seen the holiness of God, the glory of God. He's fallen on his knees in contrition. He's been forgiven. Now look what happens next. God speaks to him. He said, go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. 
Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. And then I said, for how long, Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak tree and oak leaf stumps, when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Now, how palatable is that message going to be for Isaiah's hearers? God says to Isaiah, Isaiah, I want you to go preach to the people. I want you to make their hearts calloused. I want you to make their ears dull, their eyes blind, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant. That's your mission. Now, granted, the people that Isaiah is going to preach to have declared mutiny against God. They've forsaken the Lord. They've fallen head over heels in love with idolatry. But still, the message is not going to be well received. Okay, this message is the kind of message that gets you beat up and shoved into a locker at school. Why in the world would Isaiah want to do this? Why would he volunteer for this? When God moves from concept to reality, it creates something in you. You will not shy away from hard-to-swallow truths. You will not shy away from unpopular Bible verses. The judgment of God, which is what God is telling Isaiah he's going to preach, the judgment of God is as unpalatable to modern people as it gets. But when God moves from concept to reality, you're not going to dance around those truths. The reality of God creates boldness to communicate the full breadth of God's word, including the hard-to-swallow passages. Way back in 1974, Rene Padilla put it this way, the task of the evangelist in communicating the gospel is not to make it easier so that people will respond positively, but to make it clear. Let me read that again. The task of the evangelist in communicating the gospel is not to make it easier so that people will respond positively, but to make it clear. Neither Jesus nor his apostles ever reduced the demands of the gospel in order to make converts. He who accommodates the gospel to the mood of the day does so because he has forgotten the nature of Christian salvation. It is not man's work, but God's. God has moved from concept to reality. And so Isaiah spent the next 30 plus years, 30 plus years in a largely fruitless ministry. Nobody ever listened to him. Nobody ever wrote a glowing review of his ministry. Nobody came up to him and said, you know, Isaiah, your blogs, your books, your sermons, they've really helped me. God's hand must be on you. Nobody ever said that. He was regarded as a failure. Every church in the world would have fired this guy. In fact, Jewish history says that the king eventually hollowed out a log, put Isaiah in it, and then cut it in two. And that's how it ended. Isaiah's ministry and his life, gone. God says, I need a prophet who will preach to people for 30 years and they'll never listen. And Isaiah raises his hand and says, I can do that. <laughs> what gives someone that kind of confidence? Well, I think the previous verses answer the question. The understanding that the holy, superlative God has forgiven you, is with you, approves of you, and stands by your side. You see, this is where the holiness, the transcendence, the superlativeness of God is not just scary, it's immensely comforting. 
Think about it. If you've been forgiven, accepted, adopted by the superlative, transcendent God, how comforting is that to you? If you know this holy, transcendent, superlative God is with you, you'll have the power to stand against the world. You'll have the ability to live without approval. You won't be so sensitive to criticism. You'll live every day with hope and confidence and joy. This is what God as reality creates. Isaiah withstood 30 plus years of unpopularity and perceptibly poor professional results. Precisely because being forgiven and accepted by the superlative God outweighed popularity and results. If I have the smile of God, all other frowns are inconsequential. So, is God a concept or a reality in your life? Has He changed your beliefs? Or have you modified His beliefs to fit with yours? Is He your assistant? Or is he your master? Do you treasure him for who he is in and of himself? Or did you marry him for his money? Are you able to declare the hard-to-swallow truths of our day in the face of enormous pressure to cave? Does the smile of God overpower the frowns of those around you? Let's pray. Holy, superlative, gracious, and forgiving God, I long to be transformed like Isaiah was. To see your glory in such a way that brings me to my knees. To treasure you for who you are in and of yourself, not just because of the perks of following you. We need you to sovereignly show us your superlativeness if we're ever going to be humbled by our vileness and electrified by your forgiveness. Only then will we be a loving and bold church characterized by grace and truth simultaneously. God, bring us to the place of treasuring your smile and the enormous gift that is. We worship you now for the sake of your glory.